A Flash Outside the Off Stump, Episode 18, Conclusions. And so here we are, at the final episode of A Flash Outside the Off Stump. What started as a university project assignment has over the last two years turned into a labour of love with listeners in nearly 50 countries. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these podcasts as much as I've enjoyed researching, writing and recording them. When I first scoped out the project, it was always my intention to start with the Aborigine tour and end with Leary Constantine. Their stories took place against a background where Britain was the greatest imperial power the world had ever known. The British Empire included huge swathes of Africa, Asia, Australasia and the Americas. Yet in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, non-white faces were rare enough to be considered a curiosity in much of England. When Leary Constantine and his teammates played the last pre-war test, we reached the end of an era. Post-war Britain was to be a radically different country. The strains of war had stretched both people and infrastructure to the limit. The nation's coffers were empty and huge war loans outstanding. Much of the industrial heartland was a succession of bomb sites. It would take 20 years and more to rebuild parts of it only to find that world economic conditions and trade blocks had changed and British heavy industry was no longer competitive. Tomorrow, when the, world is free. the war had also necessitated great social change, some temporary, some permanent. The barriers of class, gender and race had all, to some extent, seemed some movement during the war, but, as is often the case, proved rather elastic and began to spring back over the decade following. The great Labour landslide of 1945 seemed to indicate a hunger for social change, but the reality of austerity meant that it was difficult to deliver tangible benefits in the short term. Faced with post-war responsibilities in occupied Europe and the colonies Britain struggled to recover, rationing in those immediate post-conflict years actually became stricter. Today, most people in Britain looking back at the Labour government of 1945 see the founding of the National Health Service as its defining legacy. But there were two other outcomes which more directly demarcate this period as the end of our story. The first was Indian independence. This set a precedent and encouraged the push for independence by subject people across the empire. Within 20 years, the familiar red swathes that had been a feature of world atlases for 100 years would be all but gone. The Commonwealth would live on and cricket would be very important to many of its members. But the relationship between Britain and those members had irrevocably shifted. The second was the arrival of the Empire Windrush. Today, the Windrush is a byword for post-war Afro-Caribbean migration to Britain. But at the time, its involvement in ultimately changing the face of Britain was largely accidental. It is fair to say that the Windrush had a chequered past. 
Built in Hamburg in 1930 as the MV Monte Rosa, she was originally intended to carry migrants from Depression-era Germany to new and more prosperous lives in southern Brazil and Argentina. She was appropriated by the Nazis after their seizure of power three years later and incorporated into their Strength Through Joy program, running cruises to the Norwegian fjords. A few years later, she was used as a troop ship in Germany's invasion of Norway and was subsequently used to ferry Norwegian Jews to Poland en route to Auschwitz. She finally fell into British hands when evacuating German civilians from the Baltic as the Red Army raced towards Berlin in 1945. After the war, she was rechristened the Windrush and passed into the hands of the New Zealand Shipping Company, who operated her as a troop ship on behalf of the British government. In 1948, she was employed to pick up British servicemen and their families returning from postings in Jamaica. But the shipping company, finding they had spare capacity, decided to sell cheap tickets for the empty berths in order to reduce costs. Several hundred people, many of them ex-RAF men hoping to re-enlist, took advantage of the offer. On docking in Britain, the unexpected arrival of the Windrush's extra passengers was met with panic in some circles. A number of Labour members of Parliament wrote to Prime Minister Clement Attlee to complain about the dangers of immigration, and a parliamentary committee was set up to look into the matter of coloured migrants. However, they concluded that there was little they could do to prevent British subjects from freely moving between British territories. By the time the committee reached their conclusions, it was 1951. There had been a change of government, and the consensus across Parliament was that migrants were needed to plug labour shortages in key areas, such as transport and the NHS, and to help rebuild the country. The era of mass migration necessarily altered the dynamics of race in Britain. Non-white faces were no longer objects of curiosity, and no longer only belonged to cricketers and visiting princes. The way in which race, identity, class and politics impacted cricket in the post-war era was to be complex and wholly different impacting not just the professional game, but the grassroots as well, and it is worthy of a series of its own. Returning to the period covered by a flash outside the off-stump, what have we learned about cricket and race in the years between the Aborigines tour in 1868 and Leary's last test in 1939? We've seen how cricket was central to Britain's imperial vision, not just as a means of keeping bored soldiers and civil servants occupied in sunnier climes, but as a cornerstone of colonial culture. Cricket was consciously held up as an example of the virtues of British civilisation. Robert Mugabe, who railed against British imperialism often and at great length, nevertheless told John Major in 1991, Cricket civilises people and creates good gentlemen. I want everyone to play cricket in Zimbabwe. I want ours to be a nation of gentlemen. Cricket in the colonies may have started out merely as a diversion for Englishmen abroad, bored with long periods of inactivity in an age when overseas postings often lasted for years at a time. 
Cricket was better suited to the climate in many of Britain's overseas possessions than football or rugby, and also offered a much longer and sedate game around which to construct elaborate social rituals to bind the expatriate community together. Cricket was a little piece of England transported into an alien environment, serving as a reminder of home and a reinforcement of social order. From the English merchants who played in front of bemused Ottomans at Aleppo in the late 1600s, through 18th century British sailors in India, to the men of the first fleet arriving in Sydney, cricket provided a sense of familiarity and comfort in remote and potentially hostile surroundings. But it quickly became evident to early Victorian Empire builders that cricket could be much more than this. They noted the interest with which outsiders viewed the game's mysterious rituals. Cricket, with its emphasis on gentlemanly conduct, restraint and fair play, provided them with an excellent showcase to demonstrate all that was considered superior about the British ruling classes. If initially cricket was seen primarily as a vehicle for demonstrating British superiority, some soon pondered whether it might also be the means by which lesser people might be raised up. There were, however, disagreements about how successful such experiments could be and how far they should be extended. For some, like the Victorian ranchers who sponsored the Aboriginal tour, cricket provided evidence that supposed savages could be turned into civilised men within a year or two. To modern sensibilities, this seems incredibly patronising. But against the background of land clearance and genocide prevalent in some parts of the Australian outback, it was an important intervention which attempted to stem the dehumanisation tribal people were facing. Other imperialists saw the road to civilisation via cricket as a much longer haul. Some, like Lord Hawke, saw the introduction of cricket as planting a seed for future generations. Hawke was certainly an evangelist for the game and perhaps did more than anyone else in the 19th century to spread cricket and raise standards across the British Empire and beyond to countries such as Argentina and the USA. Although it should also be said that Hawke's efforts were mainly aimed at raising the playing standards, and by extension moral and social standards, of the white colonisers rather than the non-white colonised. However, the seeds that Hawke planted, particularly in India, Ceylon and the West Indies, eventually spectacularly bore fruit in a way which he could never have predicted. By the late 19th and early 20th century, the British establishment was moving towards a position whereby it was expedient to characterise the empire as more of a partnership and less of an imposition, even if the reality on the ground was often very different. British benevolence was now characterised as spreading learning and culture down to subject peoples, with the long-term aim of their being able to play a greater part in running their own countries. Such attitudes ignored the fact that native peoples already had learning and culture of their own and sought to create ersatz Englishmen from their middle and upper classes. This shift was necessitated by the sheer size of the empire compared to the UK. Britain could simply not hope to govern without help from below. In some circles, it was conceded that the logical outcome of this process would eventually be the same kind of self-government already enjoyed by Canada and Australia. But such opinions usually added the caveat that this would be at some unspecified point in the future, and certainly not within the Speaker's lifetime. Other imperialists, such as Cecil Rhodes and Lord Salisbury, 
made no secret of the fact that they felt that no amount of education or cricket could ever make a black or brown man the equal of a white Englishman. Such sentiments clearly lay behind Lord Harris's assertion that It is in the matter of patience that I think that the Indian will never be equal to the Englishman. Harris was so convinced of the inferiority of Indians that he even refused to believe the evidence of his own eyes, despite both playing with and watching Ranjit Singhji for many years. It is tempting to regard Harris as a reactionary bogeyman. It is true that during his time as a colonial administrator, he initially did much to block and delay the development of cricket among native Indians. It is also true that back in London, he blocked Ranji's selection for England on racial grounds. However, like Hawke, he also unwittingly helped India's eventual rise as a cricketing nation by granting grounds for a dedicated native Gymkhana. However, his sheer obstinance and unpopularity did much to unite the Parsis, Hindus and Muslims of Bombay against him. Harris's antics while governor of Bombay reminds us of another constant theme of this series, the exclusion of players on the basis of race and class. We have seen how early first-class cricket developed from aristocratic games played between the gentry of various counties, and how when first-class cricket became established in the colonies, it was often still bound by the same conventions. Indeed, the appellation of first-class status to many early matches in India and the West Indies might be supposed more to do with the social class of the players than the quality of the cricket, a point later underlined by the emergence of players like the Palwanka brothers and the Brun and Leary Constantine from well outside the orbit of white-dominated first-class cricket in their home countries. We have also seen that the desire to play well and win matches often ultimately trumped social conventions regarding who it was acceptable to play with. The initial driver for this was often the perception that batting was a pursuit for gentlemen, whereas bowling was a form of manual labour. This in turn comes from the psychology of early cricket. Batting was seen to be about scoring and hitting, and was thus seen as both more glamorous and more aggressive than bowling, which was seen as a comparatively passive activity in which the aim was as much to keep the score down as to get the batsman out. Paradoxically, although batting might be seen as the more aggressive activity, an extensive session of batting practice is far less physically tiring than bowling or running to retrieve the ball. Unsurprisingly, many early aristocratic players preferred batting practice and relied on servants to do the bowling and fetching. As games began to be played for large gambling stakes, gentlemen's sides soon came to realise, to their cost, that a successful team needed specialist bowlers too. And so it was that lower-class specialists were co-opted into these roles, thus necessitating the distinction between gentlemen and players and all that it entailed. However, over time bowling itself became faster and more aggressive. As cricket became established in India and the West Indies, those in servile roles were usually natives, and this provided a route into cricket for some, most notably Palwanka Baloo. Both at home and abroad, bowling itself became faster and more aggressive over time. Whether it be working-class bowlers in England or slaves on a Caribbean plantation, bowling offered a legitimate chance to throw something hard at a member of the ruling classes. This was acceptable up to a point. As bowling got faster and became more difficult for batsmen to handle, the establishment tried to rein it in, notwithstanding that they had hitherto encouraged it. Now the devil has a player, and he's called the demon bowler. 
and when objections were raised to fast bowling, there was often a class or race-based undertone to the complaints. When the controversy over the use of bodyline bowling arose on England's 1933 Ashes Tour of Australia, it was Nottinghamshire Miner's son Harold Larwood who was vilified and excluded from test matches, rather than Douglas Jardine, the captain who authorised the tactic. Five years earlier, Leary Constantine had received complaints in some of the county games on the West Indies tour that his bowling was too fast and dangerous for white men. Even in the 1970s, when England's batsmen found it difficult to cope with the pace attacks of Australia in the West Indies, sections of the British press were inclined to portray the former as uncouth descendants of convicts and the latter as savages. Another common theme to the series has been the perception of early non-white cricketers in England that the levels of prejudice they encountered were generally less than at home. This was as true for Leary Constantine in the 1920s as it was for the Aborigine tourists in the 1860s and the Parsis in the 1880s. All had been used to strict colour bars at home and worse. Colonial rule often involved the setting up of white-only areas and certainly featured systems in which non-Europeans were second-class citizens, if they were citizens at all. At the time of the Aborigine tour, it was fairly peaceful in their own region of Victoria, although there had been widespread massacres in Gippsland only a generation earlier, and indigenous people were still being routinely and casually murdered in Queensland and the Northern Territory of Australia. In India, at the time of the Parsi tour, Indians were barred from most European cricket grounds, and casual violence against Indians was taken for granted by some in the British community. Leary Constantine's childhood experience of nearly being run down by white horsemen is an illustration of the sense of entitlement and immunity enjoyed by those of European heritage in Trinidad, even in the early years of the 20th century. It would be untrue to claim that on arrival in England, none of these players encountered racial prejudice. This is simply not the case. They all did to one extent or another. Racist language was widespread and common, as we can see from this excerpt from the popular hit of 1932 for Ambrose and his orchestra, The Sun Has Got His Hat On. He's been tanning niggers out in Timbuktu. Now he's coming back to do the same to you. Furthermore, black or Asian cricketers in England were often patronised or expected to conform to unrealistic racial stereotypes. But on the whole, they were treated with courtesy and respect. They encountered a great deal of ignorance and curiosity but rather less outright discrimination than when they were at home. And when prejudice did arise, it was often swiftly challenged. For example, when the Aborigines were excluded from the luncheon tent while playing against Yorkshire, there was an outcry among both press and spectators alike, as reported in the York Herald at the time. This untoward event was a cause of much criticism and many comments. That the sympathy of the public was with their darker brethren was unmistakably evident on the second day by the enthusiasm which seemed to pervade them. Cricket has hitherto owed much of its popularity as a national pastime to the perfect equality on which all who indulge in the game have met at the wickets, and it is a pity, therefore, that a breach of the good old custom should have taken place in the case of a team representing those under the same rule as ourselves at the Antipodes. It is interesting that when prejudice was encountered by cricketing visitors to Britain, 
It was often from those with colonial connections, rather than from those that had lived their entire lives at home. Contempt for native people was a common trait among those who had served in the colonies. Sometimes this was rooted in having observed the wretched conditions in which many indigenous peoples lived, without proper consideration of how and why their situation had come about. Perhaps more commonly it came from a siege mentality and the awareness that native uprisings were always a possibility. By contrast, Britain at the height of empire was a largely heterogeneous society. The Irish poor and the recent influx of Jews from the Russian Empire were regarded with suspicion in some quarters. But in most parts of Britain, the only migrants were country folk moving to the major cities and industrial towns as the balance of labour changed. Britain's elevated status between Waterloo and the Great War meant that most Britons, even the poor, had a certain sense of confidence and self-worth. In this environment, the cricketers found themselves welcomed as evidence of Britain's global reach and ability to mould diverse races into civilised men. Times would change for the worse. During Leary Constantine's time in England, they certainly did. The advent of film as an entertainment medium possibly led to an increase in negative perceptions of black and Asian characters in the 1920s and 30s, as did the rise of the British Union of Fascists. The arrival of American troops during the Second World War brought overt racism and segregation into many British towns for the first time, and the arrival of the Windrush generation triggered the kind of fears among some sections of the public that were to prove a ripe breeding ground for racism. For those who visited in the Aborigine, Parsi, West Indian and Indian representative teams between the 1860s and 1920s, the experience was largely a positive one. Not only were they welcomed, they were treated as worthy opponents, congratulated on their efforts thus far and warmly encouraged to continue in the same vein. Playing on the most famous grounds in the world and against the most famous players proved to be inspirational, even if they lost, and most returned home with the sense that, in the future, anything was possible. The stately homes of England, how beautiful they stand, to prove the upper classes have still the upper hand. The next recurrent theme in the series has been the way in which class, to some extent, trumped race. It is hard to imagine the career of Ranjit Singhji having quite the same trajectory if he had been born in the same straitened circumstances as Palwanka Baloo. It is true that Ranji initially faced difficulties in breaking into the English first-class game because of his race, but without his background and connections, he would never have been able to obtain the place at Cambridge from which he was able to launch his career. Once it was known that he was a prince, his allure was considerably increased, something which he leveraged to maximum advantage. Throughout his career, Ranji astutely managed the press and sometimes exaggerated his regal status. Undoubtedly, his title contributed to his newsworthiness and power as a box office draw, and the kudos of being on good terms with a prince often overcame the barriers which qualms about his race might otherwise have presented. At the same time, Ranji went out of his way to assimilate himself to the lifestyle and accoutrements of an English country gentleman managing to strike the fine balance between being seen as belonging both to Britain and India, a balance which also fitted neatly into his political beliefs and desire for a fuller and deeper partnership between the two nations. Ranji and later Duleep Sinji and the Nawabs of Patordi were extreme examples of how class could bypass some aspects of racism. But to some extent, class perceptions played a role in helping the other early non-European tourists as well. The Parsees who visited in the 1880s were members of the middle class and were afforded the status of gentlemen, 
as were many of the black members of the West Indies teams of 1900 and 1906, and the Indian side of 1911. Gentlemanly status meant better standards of travel and accommodation, and also ensured that the tourists were treated with a degree of courtesy and respect not always extended to those lower down the social scale. Having said this, status was not an entirely impenetrable shield against racism, particularly from those who considered themselves members of the social elite. Ranji encountered racism from Lord Harris and some other members of the MCC, who were alarmed by his presence at Lord's. But he was extremely popular with the public in general, with whom his aristocratic background and, more importantly, his skill as a cricketer, generally eclipsed those who railed against him. In modern Britain, racist attitudes, rightly or wrongly, are most often associated with the white working class. Some cities in the post-industrial north of England, particularly those which now host large Pakistani communities, have seen widespread community conflict, sometimes leading to the election of far-right councillors. This has been a phenomenon in former mill towns like Burnley, Blackburn and Rochdale, all of which were places in which Leary Constantine once plied his trade. Yet far from being a pariah, he was a hero to the working-class Lancastrians in his day. After some initial uncertainty, the people of Nelson took the Constantines to their hearts. When Leary eventually qualified as a lawyer, the Nelson leader ran the headline, Local boy makes good. Leary certainly personally encountered racism, and he documented it extensively in his many books and talks, but his sporting prowess and calm eloquence were major factors in ensuring that he faced far less prejudice than black immigrants in search of ordinary work. As he moved into welfare work, he encountered the problems such workers faced and was instrumental in moving political opinion towards regarding discrimination as a subject in need of legislation. Although Leary helped to create a legacy of tolerance and anti-racism in the UK, it is true to say that during the course of his lifetime, racial conflict within the country increased. As new Commonwealth immigration increased, so too did certain social problems. Integration and the creation of a tolerant multi-ethnic society have proved to be processes measured in generations rather than years. Having said this, cricket was at the forefront in terms of integration in sport. As effectively the nearest thing the Commonwealth has to a national sport, it ensured that new arrivals from the Indian subcontinent and the Caribbean had a common sporting reference point. By the same token, the exploits of pre-war cricketers from those regions ensured that newcomers would be taken seriously, and they were to be found in all levels of the domestic English game by the end of the 1960s, something football was not to achieve for another generation. We have noted that many of the early cricketers that have been the subject of this series regarded racial prejudice as a more serious problem at home than on their visits to England. But there has been another common thread in our story. Whites may have sat at the pinnacle of racial hierarchies in the British Empire, but there were those who jealously guarded their positions farther down the hierarchy. In much of the empire, skin tone played a major part in how subject peoples interacted among themselves. India existed as a geographic concept, of course, but as a political entity, both in its pre- and post-independence forms, it was the creation of British military and bureaucratic processes. The Raj brought together hundreds of different ethnicities, speaking dozens of languages and practising a wide range of religions. Most princely states were ruled by Hindus or Muslims, although the Sikhs were also a powerful presence in the Punjab. In addition to these major religious groups, 
There were also significant communities of Buddhists, Jains, Parsis, Jews, Christians and animists among the peoples of India. The British policy in India was generally a classic case of divide and rule. The interests of regions and communities were set off against each other to prevent the formation of a common front among indigenous peoples. At the same time, the British saw an opportunity to use cricket to reinforce some of these divisions. Thus cricket, which was supposed to be both a mark of civilization and a privilege, was extended downward from the top of the hierarchy. Below the elite of the white officer and professional classes, those Europeans of lower social standing were the first group to which cricket was extended. This was followed by extending the privilege first to the Parsis, then the Hindus and then the Muslims. But aside from the religious divisions in Indian society, there were also self-imposed class distinctions, particularly among the Hindus, where the caste system was supposed to fix a person's place within a rigid social order. As a general rule of thumb, members of the higher caste tended to be paler than those of a lower caste, with the darkest often belonging to the Dalit or Untouchables, a group considered to be unclean by virtue of their traditional job roles. As we saw in the episode concerning the Indian tour of 1911, selection to the All India side was in strict accordance with quotas given to each religious group. Additionally, cricketers like the Palwanka brothers faced considerable difficulties in being allowed either to play or share facilities with other Hindus. Your father is an African, your mother may be Norwegian, you pass me you wouldn't say goodnight, feeling you are really white. Your skin may be a little pink, and that's the reason why you think the decomplexion of your face can hide you from the Negro race. No, you can never get away from the fact. If you're not white, you consider black. In the Caribbean, divisions were less rigid, but still based on skin tone. In his book, Beyond the Boundary, C.L.R. James gives a lengthy and detailed breakdown of the racial divisions in Trinidadian cricket. Teams belonged to specific communities, usually graded on the proportion of black and white blood they had. Despite these divisions between the memberships of clubs, they happily played against each other, and the teams of individual islands, as well as that of the West Indies, were generally made up of a mixture of races from the late 19th century on, although they were always captained by a white man. Outside of cricket, however, the islands were less egalitarian. A man could only rise so far before his skin tone acted as a glass ceiling. And when the islands eventually achieved self-rule, their initial governments were packed with men like Constantine and James, who had spent much of their lives in Britain because opportunities for personal development had simply not been available at home. The final theme the series looked at was how cricket became a vehicle for identity and ultimately self-determination. The English had set out to teach cricket to those they considered lesser peoples in order to make them more like Englishmen. Sport, education and other cultural activities were intended to turn the upper and middle classes of colonised peoples into British gentlemen who could be entrusted with helping to run their countries along the lines that London required. Ironically, they instead ended up creating a focal point around which national pride and identity could coalesce. Sport has long been used as a means of projecting national prowess. The ancient Olympics had served as a chance for competing Greek states to build reputations and settle scores for hundreds of years, while at the same time excluding non-Greeks, thus reinforcing their second-class status. 
However, it was in the Victorian period that it was to re-emerge in something resembling its modern form. Among the first groups to realise the potential for sport as a vehicle for national identity were the Scots and Irish, although they took radically different approaches. After the Jacobite rebellions of the 18th century, English politicians had tried their best to eradicate Celtic culture and draw Scotland and Ireland into a much tighter political union, even going so far as to rename Scotland as North Britain. However, after the Napoleonic Wars, Scots culture was reinvented and mythologised via the Ossian poems of James Macpherson and the novels of Sir Walter Scott. After the visit of George IV to Edinburgh in 1822, Britain was gripped by something of a tartan craze, culminating in spurious reference works which claimed that every Scottish clan had their own historic patterns. Romantic poetry and tartan chints were predominantly aimed at the middle classes. It was arguably the introduction of association football and rugby union internationals between England and Scotland in 1870 and 1871 that captured the imagination of the common man. Sport's role in defining a meaningful Scottish identity cannot be underestimated, and for the century following these inaugural matches was perhaps the primary way in which it was expressed. There are also incidental connections between these initial England-Scotland games and our cricket narrative. Charles Alcock was the primary mover in setting up the first series of soccer matches between the countries, and he was also responsible for arranging the fixtures for the Parsi Tour of 1886. Meanwhile in India, news of the internationals prompted the expatriates of Calcutta to hold a 20-a-side rugby match between the English and Scots of the city on Christmas Day 1872. This in turn led to the formation of the Calcutta Football Club in 1873. The club joined the Rugby Football Union in 1874, but by 1878 the heat and hard ground proved too much to make regular rugby viable. The club disbanded, but decided that their remaining funds should be donated to the RFU. The money was in the form of silver rupees, which were melted down and transformed into the Calcutta Cup. It was the intention of Calcutta Football Club that the cup should be used for a rugby union equivalent of the FA Cup, but the RFU believed that such competition would undermine the amateur ethos. The trophy thus became the prize for the annual match between England and Scotland. Although the Irish became the world's third international rugby and fourth international football team, before and after Wales respectively, nationalists in Ireland were to take a radically different approach to sport. In 1884, the Gaelic Athletic Association was formed with the intention of rejecting imperialist British games such as football, rugby and cricket, and replacing them with the specifically Irish sports of Gaelic football and hurling. The GAA had strict rules to keep their members away from non-Gaelic games, and in return the unionist community within Ireland regarded them with suspicion. For a century, Irish sport was to be split between predominantly Catholic nationalists who played Gaelic games, while rugby and cricket remained the preserve of the Protestant-dominated universities. 
Soccer survived in both communities, although it remained marginalised in the Republic of Ireland until the success of an international side largely composed of UK-based players in the closing years of the 20th century gave the domestic game a significant boost. The GAA had been right to see sport as part of the British imperial machine in 1884, but they, like the British themselves, misjudged the way in which sport would influence the relationship between Britain and her colonies. National teams, far from bringing the colonies closer to the mother country, became instead a focal point around which national pride and sentiment could coalesce. The English realised this almost as soon as they started playing representative matches. In the first recorded game between British army officers and members of the Parsi community, the former were so convinced of their superiority that they offered to play with umbrellas rather than bats. But as the gap closed between the abilities of colonisers and colonised, winning became more important. The mentality soon developed on both sides that if England could be beaten on the cricket field, then perhaps it was not invincible in other spheres either. Within a few years, English representative sides had to move from being exclusive groups for the socially privileged to carefully selected winning machines, lest British prestige be damaged by defeat. Not everyone could understand why they were taking it so seriously. J.B. Priestley commentating, for example, There are other things than games, and England is not ruined just because sinewy brown men from a distant colony sometimes hit a ball oftener than our men do. This 1953 has made cricket history England was not ruined, but her colonies took heart from their progress. Even white-ruled dominions, such as Australia and South Africa, used cricket to reinforce their sense of national identity and otherness. But it was in India and the West Indies that cricket played the biggest part in helping to build national identity. C.L.R. James going so far as to say, Cricket is the only unifying factor in the West Indies. James knew what he was talking about. He was, after all, involved in the talks to set up an independent West Indian Federation when it became clear that cricket wasn't enough to hold it together. Cricket had helped people in the Caribbean achieve a sense of identity and self-worth. It helped break the culture of white superiority and was an important factor in the movement towards self-determination. But it couldn't overcome the cultural, political and economic differences between the islands. James's statement about unity might equally be applied to India, but cricket has proved to be a much stronger adhesive there. There have been occasional calls from some nationalistic quarters to rid the country of the game as an anachronistic imperial legacy, but the game is simply too deeply embedded in the Indian psyche. It has a near-universal following and is home to the world's richest professional league. Like that other great Indian institution, Bollywood, it provides an arena where representatives of all India's communities can meet and become heroes to all. It is also significantly the one sport in which India has consistently been among the top performers in the world. Lord Harris's old policy of dividing and ruling India via cricket bore fruit, but not at all in the way that he envisaged. And so we reach the end of our story. We have seen how a few men playing in matches, many of which have long since faded into obscurity, helped shape the world in which we live today. Theirs was a different world devoid of social media and where the chances of encountering a past or future cabinet minister on a cricket square were surprisingly common. It was a period in which cricket was integral to British identity and culture in a way which is no longer the case. In the UK today it's increasingly seen as a minority or elite sport 
and it is easy to forget that it was once a national obsession with the ability to profoundly shape public opinion. The importance of the early black and Asian cricketers who visited these shores in shaping that opinion cannot be understated. Home and away, their legacy lives on. When the day is done And the ball is spun In the umpire's pocket away And all remains in the groundsman's pace For the rest of time And the day There'll be one man dog and his master Pushing for four with the skin On a dusty pitch With two pounds six of willow wood In the sun When a Flash Outside the Off Stump was produced, written and narrated by Andy Carter. Other parts were played by Mick McTiernan and Andy Carter. This was a Common Understanding production in association with Royal Holloway University of London and was recorded and mixed at Ryland Studios between August 2016 and August 2018.